A lot of the information in this podcast is covered in greater depth in my book, Compact of the Republic, The League of States and the Constitution. You can pick that up at www.compactoftherepublic.com. In that work, I argued that the American struggle with Britain was a constitutional crisis and a war for independence rather than a traditional revolution. Much of the content from this series is expounded upon in greater detail in Chapter 2. Again, you can pick that book up at www.compactoftherepublic.com. Are you ready to master historical topics without ingesting hours of readings or boring professors? Dave Benner, author of Compact of the Republic and contributor to the Tenth Amendment Center and Mises Institute, is your host. Sit back and behold the obliteration of conventional historical narratives, preferring dangerous freedom to peaceful slavery since 1776. It's Brush Fires of the Mind. The Struggle for American Independence. Episode 22, The State Constitutions. Hello everyone and welcome back. In the last episode, we talked a little bit about the military circumstances at the end of 1776 and the beginning of 1777, most notably George Washington's victories at the Battle of Trenton and Princeton. However, today we wanted to go into a little bit of the political circumstances that were unfolding in and around the same time in the American states. Because what happened was independence was declared not only by common cause in the form of the Declaration of Independence, which we've discussed before, but also individually. The states declared individual independence by state in and around the time of the Declaration of Independence, some before and some after. Now, prior to these declarations of independence in the several states, the colonies had been part of the British Empire. And under that system, they had colonial charters. These were legal grants from the king. They were frameworks for government, much like we would think of as constitutions today. In fact, many members of the founding generations referred to them as ancient constitutions, and some called them constitutions of our ancestors. However, the colonial charters were based upon the notion that the English king was sovereign and supreme above all other elements in British society and British government in general. And as we discussed when we talked a little bit about William Blackstone, the famous legal scholar in England, um, in the parliamentary sovereignty discussions, the English king was sovereign and sovereignty remained in one individual. It couldn't be divided. However, because now the states had divided themselves from the British government by means of secession from the British Empire, new governmental framework was needed because that's an incompatible doctrine with these new states. Remember, the Declaration of Independence speaks of the states as free and independent states on the same playing field as the state of Britain. That's in the fourth section of the Declaration of Independence. So now the two biggest questions facing the newly born states was one, what type of government to adopt? And number two, how to deal with the existing kingly monarchical transition and the institutions that were at the bedrock and cornerstones of a regal system based on hereditary monarchy? Well, the answer to the first question would become Republican government. Small r Republican government emphasizing that there are no longer subjects, there are citizens, and Government power is derived from the consent of the governed. It's very representative-based, not uh, based on hereditary titles, lordships, etc. And this was really a crossroads for America in so many ways. 
as we'll come to find out, many of the states dealt with these issues in very different ways. And it wasn't enough just to sever oneself from the British Empire. Each individual state had to decide how to treat these issues. Were they going to adopt some alterations of common law? Were they going to abolish some aspects of common law? Were they going to gradually deprive themselves of established Anglican churches, etc. All these questions were dealt with in the years following the declarations of independence. But today we wanted to delve into the state constitutions, the similarities and differences, and how they really helped define this era in terms of Western civilization. So in terms of similarities between the constitutions of the states, all states assumed all of the powers of an independent country. Remember, as Thomas Jefferson put it in the fourth section of the Declaration of Independence, these states are free and independent. They all have the powers of states on the same playing field as the state of Great Britain. They have the power to perpetuate war, conclude peace, and do all the other things that independent countries have the power to do. Most states in various forms included a declaration or bill of rights. Some states included that in the same document as their constitution. Others had separate documents. Others interspersed those rights within the framework. It was done differently in most states, but most of the states did have that sort of uh, addition to their constitutions. And this was reminiscent from the 1689 English Bill of Rights, which set several indictments against the King of England at that time. This was very British Whig-based oriented, um, based upon Whig notions of individual liberties. Most states included provisions that the militia of the state was subordinate to the civil government. This is one of the most defining aspects of American republicanism. The notion that the uh, the military force is subordinate to the civil government because what the Whigs and pro-patriots had seen time and time again again in world history is that standing armies were formed that could essentially coerce a populace to do whatever the government wanted to do. So this is a very important foundational axiom of American republicanism. Most states created a legislative, executive, and judicial branch under the separation of powers doctrine. Now we haven't talked that much about that yet, but the separation of powers doctrine is essentially a legal maxim that holds that power is less likely to be corrupted or consolidated by a central government if the various political powers are disseminated amongst varying departments of government. And the person most influential and famous for disseminating this principle is Charles-Louis Seconda, otherwise known as Montesquieu. Um, so Montesquieu had written a famous treatise called The Spirit of the Laws, which had kind of set in motion this doctrine. And it became incredibly influential to American statesmen. Many people pointed it out. James Madison was one person that was especially fond of Montesquieu, but he was very prominent amongst uh, legal scholars in this generation. Most states included religious oaths as prerequisites to civil office. This meant unless one was to recite a particular oath 
that is contained within the state constitution, one can't ascend to a position of civil power, such as a secretary of the treasury, such as the secretary of state, such as the governor, etc. And as we'll come to find out, a lot of states dealt with this differently, and there were definitely many variances when it came to this. However, most states had some kind of religious oath in their constitution. Most states prevented office holders from having a seat in the legislature as well. This was done to try to prevent conflicts of interest between branches. And we'll come to find that that idea was also influential in the future circumstances that led to the adoption of the US Constitution as well. A sample religious oath that was contained within one state's constitution, and it was a unique state, by the way, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, is found in Vermont's Constitution of 1777. There, here was the religious oath that was required to be recited upon obtaining civil office. Quote, I blank do believe in one God, the creator and governor of the diverse, the rewarder of good and the punisher of the wicked. And I do acknowledge the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration and own and profess the Protestant religion. So as you can see here, this had some specific qualities that were required to be stated prior to you know, becoming endowed with the civil trust of the government to obtain political office. And some of these uh, oaths would be more controversial as time went on, but you can see how sometimes these are crafted to essentially restrict people that were not necessarily Protestants from attaining office. And this is just one example. Not every state even had an established religion, let alone had an oath such as this, but this was an example that was more or less prevalent in this time. Now, the constitutions of the several states also had several differences as well, much like some of them had similarities. Namely, governmental structure. For instance, some states had unicameral legislatures, Pennsylvania being an example, and some had bicameral legislatures. Virginia is an example of that. Governors wielded varying levels of authority as well, and there were cases in which some states didn't even have an executive office or governor. So we'll talk a little bit about that later. So depending on the state, the government, the governor could either have incredible political power in one case um, having the power to share the legislative authority, which we would, you know, mock today if somehow a governor were able to legislate, right? But back then, there were various uh, norms concerning how the executive office was to function. Also established churches. Uh, there were some Congregationalist established churches, and an example of that is in Massachusetts and also Connecticut. And in those cases, the established Congregationalist church lasted long into the 19th century. So there is an officially established church as part of those two states. Also, some states had an Anglican established church, such as in Virginia and South Carolina. Now, some of the Anglican established churches didn't really take root um, to an extent where they became such an ingrained um, part of society. However, in Virginia, it certainly did. Unlike these examples, some states had no established church. Some examples of this are Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and New Jersey. Now, the reasoning for this is historical. For instance, 
Rhode Island's founder had decided this categorically not to have an established religion because he was essentially exiled from Massachusetts colony for professing religious beliefs that didn't conform to their government. So, as we can see, this was a deliberate stride on the part of some of the states, but not all of them. Voting rights were handled differently per state. As we'll come to find out, some voting rights were restricted only by the age of the populace, some limited uh, women from voting, but not all, as we'll discuss also. Um, and the most prevalent way in which voting rights were restricted was upon property ownership thresholds. So in circumstances where voting was allowed, sometimes it would only be permitted if you owned a certain acreage of land. Um, this was called freeholders. Freeholders would own the requisite amount of land in order to vote. The ratification process was also different depending on the state. So some state constitutions were ratified by special ratification conventions that had been elected to decide such issues. Others had been drafted by the legislature. Some had been drafted by a legislature then sent to the voters for a referendum for that constitution to be voted on, like Massachusetts is an example of that. Elected terms for public officials were also varying as well. Some states had one-year terms for public office in the legislature. Other, other uh, systems had different terms for elected officials. Same with governorships. The constitutional amendment process was also different based on state. So I'd like to delve into some of the most defining aspects of each of the state's constitutions, and we'll be handling 14, by the way, and we'll talk about why we're handling 14, because most narratives that we'll discuss history at that time will refer to 13 colonies, but I, there's actually 14 at this time, and one's a special case, so we'll talk about that later. But we'll start with two constitutions that were considered very divergent from the, uh, each other, because one of them was considered very much an aristocratic model, that being Virginia, whereas the other, Pennsylvania, was considered to be very much the opposite. So in Virginia, the Declaration of Rights was adopted on June 12, 1776. Note that this was before the Declaration of Independence. The Republican Constitution of Virginia was adopted just a few weeks later on June 29, 1776. Both of these documents were primarily written by George Mason, was at that time considered the foremost authority on constitutional republicanism in the American states. Now, under Virginia's Republican Constitution, Patrick Henry was sworn in as the first Republican governor. And remember, it was Virginia that really spearheaded this uh, campaign to get the other states to go along with independence. It was the Richard Henry Lee resolution that was... Uh, offered by the famous statesman Richard Henry Lee of Virginia that asked for the other states to declare independence and common cause, which eventually became a resolution passed by the Continental Congress and written as the Declaration of Independence. Now, Virginia's constitution contained a series of indictments against King George III, just as the Declaration of Independence would, and Thomas Jefferson was very much influenced by this in writing that document. One of them was, quote, by with several acts of misrule, the government of this country, as formally exercised under the crown of Great Britain, is totally dissolved. This was a Lockean construct that 
a government that was tyrannical or impacted negatively the rights of the populace could be abolished by its uh, populace. Some of the key provisions of the Virginia Constitution were, one, a bicameral legislature, the Virginia General Assembly. Two, the notion that all laws were to originate in the lower house. Now we'll see that there's many differences in the other states when it came to this issue, but in Virginia, laws had to originate in the lower house. The Anglican established church was at the root of Virginia society at the time that the constitution was ratified. Religious oaths were required, but free exercise of religion was guaranteed. Now this would cause some controversy in the years after the Virginia constitution because James Madison spearheaded an effort to completely disestablish the church and eliminate all subsidies for religious churches in Virginia, but that wouldn't come until about a decade later. The governor in Virginia was elected by the legislature. Now that again wasn't the case in other states. And the governor of Virginia actually held very little real power. In fact, he didn't even have veto power, which was one of the hallmark traits of executives at this time. The military in Virginia, like I said earlier, was a commonality in many of the states, was to be subordinate to and governed by the civil power. Now, the American statesmen and founding generation were big historians of the end of the Roman Republic, and they had realized that Julius Caesar, through duplicitous circumstances, had essentially seized power over the government, and his assassination essentially ended with the overthrow of the Republic itself after a civil war. And thinking that this was really a tyrannical thing that should never be repeated, especially in America, they made strides to prevent it. Voting rights in Virginia were limited to property ownership thresholds, as we discussed earlier, was a very typical thing. The commencement of the Virginia Convention of 1776 that drafted the Virginia Constitution was really one of the most defining moments in world history when it comes to republicanism for America and the world. This was the first time that a constitution was written and ratified by the people's representatives in the history of the world. There were other times in which republican written constitutions were adopted, but such as in England, the instrument of government and the humble petition and advice under the Cromwellian Interregnum were written but not ratified by the people's representatives. So this was really a defining moment for republicanism in the world. Among the most defining clauses of Virginia's Republican Constitution was the following, quote, that all men are by nature equally free and independent and have certain inherent rights of which when they enter into a state of society, they cannot by any compact deprive or divest their posterity namely the enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. This was a Lockean axiom that had been adopted by the founding generation and was really articulated in Locke's second treatise on civil government, where Locke had explained that the purpose of any government was to protect life, liberty, and property. And going beyond the, those bounds it was essentially unauthoritative. But note how Virginia puts this. 
that they have those certain inherent rights. Remember, in the Declaration of Independence, they're called inalienable rights. When they enter into a state of society, well, Virginia had decided by virtue that slavery was permissible in its state, that slaves weren't part of the society. And even though there were slaveholders that very much were against slavery, opposed to it profusely, and did things to try to curtail it, Virginia had adopted its first Republican framework under the notion that states hadn't entered into the society and thus their rights couldn't be protected. Rightly or wrongly, that's how the Constitution was. Pennsylvania's Constitution was very much dissimilar from Virginia's by means of the structure and the feel of it, because Pennsylvania's Constitution was considered more radical. The Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776 was drafted by Robert Whitehill, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Young, George Bryan, and James Cannon. Of course, Franklin's the most noteworthy and recognizable of that group, but all those people were prominent politicians in Pennsylvania at the time. Many of the Constitution of Pennsylvania's underlying ideas were influenced by Thomas Paine in writings that he had made, especially in Common Sense and the American Crisis. It really tried to form the Republican ideal that he expressed. However, he wasn't the only influence on it by any stretch. Pennsylvania's Constitution included a Declaration of Rights that was very reminiscent of Virginia's, and really Virginia's Declaration of Rights uh, inspired a host of other declarations of rights. As I mentioned, it was probably the most radical of all state constitutions, and we'll come to find out momentarily why that's the case. From adoption, though, controversy swirled over this constitution, and especially over the question of whether it should be changed, which it eventually was shortly after its adoption. But some of the key provisions of the original constitution was one, a unicameral legislature with one year terms. So the terms of the legislators would rotate very quickly. All legislation was to take effect only at the beginning of the next session. So this was to allow the society in Pennsylvania to adapt gradually to policies rather than having it be thrust upon them immediately. It would also give the state the benefit of reversing uh, policies that had been imposed and would be unpopular. There were no property requirements for voting in Pennsylvania. This was extremely radical, not only in the entire world, but also in America. Americans were actually among the most enfranchised of all people in the world at that time. Um, for instance, in Virginia, about 50% of the land holding white males could vote. And you might think that that would be, you know, very, very limited in terms of voting rights. But as a comparison to the rest of the world, relatively, it was a large percentage of the populace. Well, look at this in the case of Pennsylvania. There weren't any property requirements. Executive authority was shared by a 12-member council, and there was no executive veto. So really, the uh, governor of Pennsylvania was not very powerful in relation to some of the other states. The judiciary um, had judges that were appointed to terms of seven years and removable. There was no established religion or religious oaths in Pennsylvania, again, making it relatively unique compared to the rest, rest of the states. 
There was also a council of censors established in the state, which was an institution that was to evaluate whether the deeds of the legislature violated the Constitution. It could also propose amendments and even call for an amendment convention to revise the Pennsylvania Constitution. Under Pennsylvania's Constitution, quote, all men have a natural and unalienable right to worship Almighty God according to the dictates of their own consciences and understanding, and that no man ought or of right can be compelled to attend any religious worship or erect or support any place of worship or maintain any ministry contrary to or against his own free will and consent. Nor can any man who acknowledges the being of a God be justly deprived or abridged of any civil right as a citizen on account of his religious sentiments or a peculiar mode of religious worship. So in Pennsylvania, not only wasn't it enough to tolerate dissenting religious views, no test os could prohibit the ascension of someone to office on account of their religious beliefs. New Jersey's constitution was adopted on July 2nd, 1776, which coincidentally was the same day that the Richard Henry Lee resolution had passed the Continental Congress that called for all ties with Britain to be dissolved. New Jersey had a bicameral legislature. The council and the assembly were the two houses that made it up. English common law was retained in force unless changed by the legislature. And this was the case in many states where more or less elements of the common law system were adopted, but there were some variances and this was amended over time. The governor is the commander-in-chief of the militia, much like in many other states. In New Jersey, judges on the highest court served seven-year terms, and there was no established church in New Jersey, much like in Pennsylvania and Rhode Island, and no religious oaths imposed. Voting rights were extended to all inhabitants with a certain amount of wealth, residing in the state for 12 months preceding each election. Now, notice that New Jersey didn't prohibit women from voting, and it was fairly unique in this regard. In fact, women voted in New Jersey until 1807 when the Constitution was amended to prohibit it. So women could essentially vote in New Jersey for about 30 years. The Constitution itself said the following, quote, that all inhabitants of this colony of full age who are worth 50 pounds proclamation money clear a state in the same and have resided within the county in which they claim a vote for 12 months immediately preceding the election shall be entitled to vote for representatives in council and assembly and also for all other public officers that shall be elected by the people of the county at large. In Maryland, the constitution was adopted in November 11, 1776. So Maryland adopted its constitution several months after the Declaration of Independence. Maryland also had a bicameral legislature and the two houses were called the Senate and House of Delegates. Only the House of Delegates could originate money bills and we'll see this is an idea that influenced what's called the origination clause of the US constitution that basically gave the lower house the power of the purse. Why? Because it was more closely attuned to and associated with elections by the people. The governor in Maryland was chosen by joint ballot of both houses for three-year terms. So kind of like Virginia where joint ballot of the legislature determined the governor, Maryland adopted a very similar mechanism for that. Even though Maryland technically had an officially established Anglican church, 
It also guaranteed free exercise of religious worship under its constitution, but it did also permit the legislature to allow for taxes to support the established church. You'll see that in Virginia for about 10 years after Virginia adopted its constitution as well. Maryland also prohibited suspending laws, and what this was was it prevented the governor from refusing to enforce the law. Some of the other constitutions did this as well, but this was essentially um, based upon the premise that what the elected representatives of the people decide should be enforceable whether or not the governor likes it. Now, that issue has actually had some controversy over the early Republican period of American history, but we're not going to delve into that right now. Voting rights in Maryland were limited to all free men above 21 years old with a property above 30 pounds. So again, these property thresholds were really the most defining way in which people were disenfranchised from having the right to vote. Rhode Island declared independence prior to the Declaration of Independence on May 4, 1776. Its new framework was different than all the other constitutions that we've mentioned so far, and that's because, unique to Rhode Island and one other state, it adopted its colonial charter as the same exact constitution and framework for the government, except for all the references to the king and the monarchy was removed. So Rhode Island had accepted its 1663 charter as its constitution with a few anti-monarchical alterations. And indeed, Rhode Island wouldn't even have a constitution until long into the 19th century, I believe into the 1840s. So Rhode Island maintained this constitution for a long time. It was considered a cornerstone of their society. Some of the key provisions in Rhode Island's system was that there was no established church, no religious oaths imposed, and it very was, uh, very much was radically liberal in terms of religious liberty. Indian territories were considered as separate sovereigns also under the Rhode Island Constitution. And again, this is reminiscent from Rhode Island's history where the founder was especially friendly with local Indian tribes and acted in goodwill to establish um, good relations with them. Roger Williams, he was a very unique guy. Delaware's constitution was adopted on September 20th, 1776. In unique fashion, Delaware's constitution also contained a declaration of secession from Pennsylvania. So you might be asking, why did it need to do this? Wasn't Delaware its own political entity at this time? Well, the answer is yes and no. Technically, Delaware was still part of the original colonial charter of William Penn for Pennsylvania. And the lower three colonies, as they're called, that formed Delaware had essentially seceded from the Pennsylvania colonial government and Pennsylvania didn't press the issue. However, that wasn't really legally codified. So Delaware chose to include that in their Republican constitution. Delaware had a bicameral legislature with the House of the Assembly and a council. Civil officers and the president were appointed by joint ballot. The president and the General Assembly shared a power to appoint judges. Voting rights were limited to all freeholders. Remember, those were people that had owned a certain threshold of wealth of at least 25 years of age. Delaware also uniquely prohibited the international slave trade. And other states had tried to do this as well, including Virginia. But as Thomas Jefferson wrote in... Uh, 
the notes of the state of Virginia, the king had essentially refused to allow the colony to do so. Well, Delaware was able to permit that, uh, the prohibition thereof, I should say, and it was a unique facet of Delaware's constitution. That would influence the U.S. Constitution's provision to allow the Congress to do the same several years later. Under Delaware's Constitution, quote, no person hereafter imported into this state from Africa ought to be held in slavery under any presence whatsoever, and no Negro, Indian, or mulatto slave ought to be brought into this state for sale from any part of the world. That's according to Article 26 of Delaware's Constitution. However, again, the international slave trade was permitted in other states. In New York, the Republican Constitution was adopted April 20th, 1777 by a provisional council, which was really the de facto government of the uh, state once it had essentially kicked out the royal authorities that had governed it prior. The document also contained a Declaration of Independence, which was extremely reminiscent of the Declaration of Independence adopted by the Continental Congress, including a lot of the same wording. It was drafted by John Jay, Robert Livingston, and Governor Morris, all of which were very prominent politicians in their own right, and all of them became very famous not only in New York, but also in national politics as the early republic unfolded. New York had a very weak bicameral legislature, and it had a very powerful, by relative measure, executive branch underneath its governor. Essentially, the governor had a lot of the political power in New York and the ability to essentially run most of the country's internal affairs by himself. Voting rights were also determined in New York by property ownership thresholds, and George Clinton was elected as the first governor. He would become a very prominent politician in the state as well, a longtime governor that influenced the course of New York history throughout the War for Independence until the critical period under the Articles of Confederation and by the time of the adoption of the Constitution as well. Connecticut is a case like Rhode Island where the state actually remained attached to its original colonial charter with a few alterations to remove references to the crown, the monarchy, um, regal influences, the bestowment of titles, etc. The governor possessed an executive council in Connecticut, all of which were elected to one-year terms. Remember, some of these states had very small terms for its elected offices, and many of the legislators didn't even convene into a quorum, but for a small time per year. Politics was certainly not like it is now back then. Like Massachusetts, there was a Congregationalist established church that I believe lasted into the 1830s, and that was the officially sanctioned and established religion in Connecticut. Connecticut's constitution also permitted letters of mark and reprisal, which we haven't really discussed yet, but basically these were licenses on behalf of the government to privateers or private shipholders to essentially perpetuate warfare against an enemy on behalf of the government. So these privateers were allowed to take prizes and essentially wage the naval war against the British. And this would be invaluable and much of the naval warfare was privateer-based warfare at this time. This applied to about 250 privateers during the war in Connecticut. 
because Connecticut had decided to essentially readopt its colonial charter, it put the following clause in a general court resolution, quote, and be it enacted by the governor, council, and representatives in general court assembled and by the authority of the same, that the form of civil government in this state shall continue to be as established by charter received from Charles II, King of England, so far as an adherence to the same will be consistent with an absolute independence of this state on the crown of Great Britain. So Connecticut was essentially saying, we take our government to be a slightly altered version of our original charter, but without some references to the monarchy within it. New Hampshire adopted its constitution on January 5th, 1776. So this was long before the Declaration of Independence. It did not contain a Bill of Rights. I believe Virginia's Bill of Rights was the first for the entire array of states at this time. New Hampshire also had a bicameral legislature, the House of Representatives and Council, and the lower house of New Hampshire elected the upper house. This would be consistent with some of the other states, but it was very unique from other states as well. New Hampshire did not create a chief executive of any kind. So this was pretty unprecedented compared to much of the rest of the states. Some states had very low power, relatively speaking, governors or executives, but New Hampshire didn't even have a chief executive. In the state, a combined vote of the legislature elevated civil and military officers to one-year terms in government. The Constitution of New Hampshire was actually replaced in 1784, so it had only had its constitution for about eight years. South Carolina's constitution was adopted on March 26, 1776. However, this constitution was rapidly replaced by two other constitutions, one in 1778 and another in 1790. Like most of the other states, South Carolina had a bicameral legislature. Its executive was elevated by a joint ballot of the legislature. But what was unique to South Carolina was that the president, which was the chief executive, was extremely powerful in relation to the other state executives. For instance, the president of South Carolina actually shared the legislative power. He shared in the power to make law. He could also independently make war or peace or enter into any treaties unilaterally. So this more or less was like the British king in South Carolina. And the popular figure John Rutledge, who was probably the most famous person in his entire state during this time, was elected as first president, and Henry Lawrence was vice president. Rutledge played a big role in actually organizing um, South Carolina's role in the War for Independence. In North Carolina, the Republican Constitution was adopted on December 18, 1776. It contained a Declaration of Rights. It also had a bicameral legislature. There were no property ownership thresholds for voting rights in North Carolina, though, making it a little bit distinct. The state required all bills to be read three times in each house before passed into law. You might chuckle about this because in recent decades in the U.S. government, it's come to be pretty much the norm that 
legislation isn't even read by those in the United States government before it's voted upon. Well, North Carolina's constitution forced each bill to be read three times by each house. So that's kind of a interesting facet here. The governor of North Carolina was chosen by the legislature for a one-year term. The governor had the power to lay embargoes, prohibit exportation for a time, and grant pardons and reprieves, making him more powerful than most of the other governors. North Carolina, through its Republican constitution, decided to disassociate itself from the officially established state church, which was technically Anglican, through the following resolution, quote, that no persons who heretofore have been, or hereafter may be, receivers of public the monies shall have a seat in either House of General Assembly, or be eligible to any office in this state, until such person shall have fully accounted for and paid into the treasury all sums for which they may he accountable and liable. Georgia first adopted a document called Rules and Regulations of the Colony of Georgia in 1776, which was something of a proto-constitution, but its actual constitution was adopted on February 5, 1777. Georgia, unlike most of the other states, had a unicameral legislature. There were one-year terms for representatives in the legislature, and Georgia banned primogeniture and entail. So I'll just briefly describe these legal premises, but primogeniture was the legal norm that had existed at the time, which disposed all of a family's property to the oldest male son. And this tradition took hold in many of the other states, notably Virginia as well, but Georgia prohibited it. Um, also, Georgia's constitution prohibited entail. This legal principle was the idea that after all of an estate had been assumed by the oldest male child, it could not be redistributed or carved up or divided into other titles that could be bestowed elsewhere. It had to be, remain within the oldest male child. In Georgia, the governor had a one-year term and possessed an executive council to help him execute the law. At this point, Georgia was extremely sparsely populated. Georgia's constitution lasted only about 12 years until it was replaced. Vermont's political status made the state of Vermont extremely unique. Vermont was more or less an independent republic like all the other states at this time, but New York actually maintained a claim on the state. Um, that claim went back for decades, and legal controversy swirled around this issue for several decades, even until the 1790s. Nonetheless, Vermont adopted its own Republican Constitution in 1777. It, ironically, remained outside of the Articles of Confederation system and remained as an independent republic until 1791 when it joined the United States under the second constitution of the United States. A few of the key provisions within Vermont's constitution make it an especially radical independent state at this time. For instance, its preamble declared severance from both Great Britain and New York. So it explicitly denied that there was any political attachment between the independent Republic of Vermont and New York. Remember that controversy raged for several decades. But probably more importantly, Vermont's constitution abolished slavery in almost all circumstances. 
and it's hard for me to properly articulate just how radical this was. This made Vermont the first Republican government in the world to essentially abolish slavery. There were very few circumstances in which it was allowed, but we won't delve into that right now. But this was a very radical stride when it comes to the development of Western civilization in general. And here is the clause within Vermont's constitution that talks of its severance from both Great Britain and New York. Quote, and whereas the late Lieutenant Governor Colden of New York with others did in violation of the 10th command covet those very lands and by a false representation made to the court of Great Britain in the year 1764 that for the convenience of trade and administration of justice, the inhabitants were desirous of being annexed to that government, obtained jurisdiction of those very identical lands ex parte, whichever was and is disagreeable to the inhabitants. So here Vermont makes it clear that despite the attempt of New York to force the issue in a court, Vermont remains independent and is not a part of New York. Vermont really was an interesting independent republic that had existed essentially totally independent of any union that would be formed in North America until 1791. Nonetheless, it's still worthy of a study in American Republican government because it adopted a similar framework as an independent state. The Republican Constitution of Massachusetts was adopted on June 15, 1780, and it was primarily written by John Adams, although there were others that contributed to it as well. It featured a bicameral legislature, much like had existed in the colonial government before it, and each of the houses of the legislature actually had a negative power on the other, which is essentially a veto power. The governor was elected by referendum. You know, we've been talking about a lot of states where actually the governor was appointed by the legislature, but not in this state. There was a referendum to decide that here. Like many other states, the governor held power over the militia and navy and also veto power over legislation. Judges in Massachusetts, unlike many of the other states, held power during good behavior. This was to mean that they hadn't engaged in any nefarious deeds that would force their impeachment. And Massachusetts required towns to pay for the upkeep of the established Congregationalist Church. Article 1 of the Massachusetts Constitution was interpreted as having the effect of abolishing slavery in the state in 1781. Now, there's some evidence to suggest that that wasn't the initial uh, intention of this clause, but nonetheless, that legal decision essentially made slavery impermissible in Massachusetts where it's ever remained. It's the oldest constitution still in place in the world. A lot of people make the mistake of saying that's the US Constitution, but it's not. The 1780 Constitution of Massachusetts is still the framework for the Massachusetts government, and it precedes the adoption of the federal constitution by about eight years. Some of the brightest and most notorious minds of New England took part in the Massachusetts Convention that uh, wrote the Constitution of the state. And it's unsurprising to see that Massachusetts was hoist into the forefront, much like it was before the War of Independence, into the future by means of its influence on the region and American history in general.
So that's all 14 states. So where do we go from now? Well, I want to touch briefly on the Articles of Confederation as well, even though you could do a course on this entire subject. I don't have enough time to do that, but I wanted to talk about how all the state constitutions fit into the first union that would be formed under North American Republican government. So by 1777, all states had either uh, formed a provisional government or permanent ones under their Republican constitutions. For instance, Massachusetts constitution wasn't adopted yet, but there was a provisional government there. Well, the Articles of Confederation was drawn up in 1777. Its chief kind of mission was to formalize a confederacy of American states for a few predefined purposes. John Dickinson was the primary author of the document. And even though Dickinson has lost quite a bit of notoriety and prestige over you know, the, the last century or so, he really was one of the most you know, respected legal minds of his time and certainly the most, one of the most influential figures of the founding generation. The Articles of Confederation was the first constitution for the United States. It was a constitution. It was a framework for government, and it was a framework of enumerated powers. And what this meant was the Articles of Confederation could not be construed so that everything not listed could be permitted. On the contrary, the Articles of Confederation was intended to be interpreted based on what was permitted. So there were, I believe, 13 resolutions in the document, and that was to form the entirety of what Congress was allowed to do under the Articles of Confederation. Well, ratification was put on hold of the Articles of Confederation because primarily land disputes between states prevented some states from wanting to sign on. Most notorious of these was Maryland, who refused to ratify until 1781 because they didn't want to enter into a union where Virginia essentially controlled the whole world in their eyes. Uh, Virginia had land claims that extended so far to the west and included so much territory. Maryland just thought it would be, you know, an underling vassal government to, you know, giant Virginia and the other big states. Um, there were other land claims as well that caused controversies between other states, but that was the most infamous when Virginia eventually allowed a cession of its western territory. Maryland signed on and the document was ratified on March 1st, 1781. Now, in the interest of time, I don't really have the ability to venture into all the angles of this constitution and what it permitted, its pros and cons, etc. But I would like to quickly go through some of the most important defining elements. As I said before, it was a constitution of enumerated expressly delegated powers, whereupon Congress could not assume any power that was not explicitly delegated. It formed a unicameral legislature called the Confederation Congress. Approval of nine states was required to enact the most important policies, such as engaging in war, entering into treaties, coining money, appropriating money for uh, the states, admitting new states, etc. Um, each state was equally represented in the Confederation Congress. Each state picked the delegates for the Confederation Congress and a quorum was required to carry a state's vote. There is a requisition system to raise revenue. Requisition is essentially voluntary taxation, and you might think that might be an oxymoron, but essentially what happened was 
state by state, the population was apportioned and a certain figure of taxes were recommended to each state. Now, the Confederation Congress and the Articles of Confederation Government didn't really have an enforcement mechanism to collect these taxes. They were just kind of guidelines. So many states did not pay at all or only paid some of what they were told they were due. So this caused some problems, but essentially the requisition system was how the government was funded. Like I said, there was no policy or law enforcement mechanism to carry out the taxation or indeed the resolutions that the Confederation Congress passed. In fact, the resolutions had to be enforced by the states themselves. There was no executive office or executive power. There wasn't a president under the Articles of Confederation. The governors of the states essentially served as the executives. And remember, New Hampshire didn't even have an executive. So there was no judiciary under the Articles of Confederation as well, although the document did set some guidelines for disputes between states on how they should be handled. Namely, there was special ad hoc tribunals that were constituted for those purposes. So the readings I'd like to recommend for today's lessons include the always great Murray Rothbard's Conceived in Liberty, which touches upon some of these state constitutions. Bernard Balin's The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution, which I haven't recommended before, but it touches on a lot of the Republican ideas during this time that were really important. Gordon Wood's The American Revolution discusses some of these topics as well. And my own Compact of the Republic, The League of States and the Constitution in Chapter 2 refers to many of these things as well. You can find a link to that in the show notes below. And I really appreciate if you pick up a copy. That kind of sets the stage for a lot of these issues. So in the next episode, we'll venture back to the military history of the war, talk about what 1777 meant for the Patriots and the British, and talk about a strategic operation of the British that ended in calamity. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of Brush Fires of the Mind. If you want to subscribe to this podcast, drop by my website, www.davebenner.com, click podcast, and you can subscribe right there.